All right, looks like we're at time. Greetings to those of you who are joining us online. Greetings to everyone present. Glad you're all here. So let's, uh, last week, last week we took a little field trip and had a discourse that the question at hand was women's ordination. And of course, as we looked at the passages that forbid uh, women from being pastors, we see that there's a rationale and a basis there. And that rationale and basis is in the ordering of creation. So maybe to refresh your memory, 1 Corinthians 11, the head of Christ is God. The head of a man is Christ and the head of a woman is man. So there's this ordering of creation. And then we see that reflected holistically in the scriptures um, in all the estates, the estate of the family, of course, where you have the headship of the husband, but also the estate of the state and the estate of the church, which is the estate of the church is where we then focused our time. And that includes the Old Testament church. So when you have the Levitical priesthood, it is uh, not all... um, When you have the Levitical priesthood, it's um, males from the tribe of Levi, and then even then not all males, but just some. So you've you've got this thoroughgoing kind of teaching, and it's got uh, little strands that are in every part of the scriptures and all kind of coalesce. So um, what I thought we'd do after our prayer is just see if there are any uh, thoughts resonating, any questions or clarifications on that point. And if not, then we'll jump back into uh, the parables in Luke chapter 20. All right. So let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts as we look to your scriptures, that by them we may see and that by them we may see rightly. We pray your blessing upon all the men gathered here, whether online or in person. We pray that you would lead them and guide them, especially in this time when the spirit of the age, the spirit of this world is so contrary to masculinity, so contrary to the ordering of creation, the great heresies of our time, so oriented against the first article of the creed, your glorious creation. Bless us as we study your word. May we be strengthened and encouraged by it. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, when my daughter, who has a fair amount of theological aptitude for her age, she's very interested in it, asks great questions, has good knowledge, um, has absorbed parts of the liturgy already and can say them. When she says, Dad, why can't I become a pastor? My answer is for the same reason I can't become a mother. Because this has to do with the ordering of creation. Uh, Not all women are given to be mothers, but certainly being a woman is a precondition of being a mother. And any man who attempts that, as some are doing today, makes a disaster of himself, makes a mockery of that office, and is going to end up doing severe damage to that child or those children. And all the same applies to, quote unquote, women pastors. There's just no way around it. So, too, not all men are called to be pastors. In the same way, not all women are called to be mothers. 
but it's a precondition of being a pastor is to be a male and females who try to inject themselves into that office, not given by God and not created for them are mangling themselves spiritually and doing great damage to the spiritual children who um, they forcibly put under their care. All right. So that's kind of my opening salvo for tonight. See if that jogs any conversation, questions, uh, disagreements, fine, of course, too. So gather your thoughts. And if you don't have any, that's that's fine. Um, I think that that's recorded, isn't it, uh, David? Okay. All right. Yeah, it'll it'll be online. So had to get some more bandwidth for the emails that'll be incoming to my. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So you all can check that out uh, maybe in the in the next week or so whenever that gets put up. Right. So I realize you are on campus for already. That we should bring them back. <laughs> And it would do our a great deal of good to have them brought back. It's a symbol of their humility and a symbol of their It went away in America. I haven't I haven't researched this to any depth. I but it went away in America somewhere around American Christianity. Head coverings was the norm since the inception of our country forward. It was the norm in the time of the Reformation. It's been the norm in the Western Church forever and a day until uh, 1950, when a non-Christian Jewess. Uh, spearheaded this movement to get rid of head coverings in the churches. And it's spiritually analogous to the civil uh, sphere burning of bras. So it's just, uh, and, and now listen, I, we should be very, should be very uh, gentle with the women in our church. They don't mean anything by it. You know, they're not, they're not flaunting it. It's not an act of conscious, uh, subversion of the hierarchy or conscious subversion of the scripture. Very gentle, teach and admonish, uh, probably in a with a long term view. I don't anticipate, um, I don't anticipate this ever becoming a sort of law or point of contention where we'd say you have to or you're sinning. But this is a practice we should gradually wend our way back toward. It's thoroughly biblical. And if you look at it, I mean, for many years, I, it's how, I was, how I was trained. So the cultural milieu, for many years, you find your way to work around, you know, work around text. But we can go back and look at that text if you want. But Paul's just absolute about it. And he's all the churches have got this practice. And if you're, content, you're contentious about it, you disagree tough. You're on the outside of what I teach, what the apostles teach, and what all the churches of God do. It's just what, that's just what's on the paper. Uh, of course, I know ways to work around that because I was trained to have ways to work around that. But that's kind of not right, don't you think? <laughs> so I have to, anyway, is that, that's more than 90 seconds. Let me just shut off there. That's simple. Give myself the trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I'd, I'd, uh, maybe it'd be good for some of us to get together and kind of brainstorm what a curriculum would look like. And so 
it's always the tough thing is trying to decide how to do that. It's not the doing it, doing it itself, but the you know parameters of it. So yeah, I, I'm interested in that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it falls under that admonition elsewhere in the scriptures that husbands be not be harsh with their wives. And that's really what we're talking about here. And then just in the church, it's just kind of writ large. So especially because we've got such dear, wonderful Christian women in this congregation. And, you know, again, where their heart is, is not in any way trying to trample or subvert or do any of, you know, things. Um, it, it is it even the circumstances all the more call for gentleness when you've got that kind of spirit and attitude. Very very few, if any, of our women really genuinely harbor the kind of feminist rebellion that's so prevalent in our culture and has been prevalent in our culture for sixty years. Um, yeah, please. Is there any chance that um, by Paul saying that, that that's more like? cultural and maybe there's something different in our culture that's related to that like you know don't wear a tank top and or something like that you know like is that is there a chance that that was a version of being more liberal or whatever back then and there might be something different yeah definitely is um i mean that was a statement uh in that day and age taking off your head covering or wearing braided hair was a cultural statement. And so we need to be cognizant of that as a category because there may be other cultural statements that may arise that women or men may do that signal heresy, that signal false belief. So yeah, we want to be cognizant of that in a broad way. I don't think that that's what's going on in particular with head coverings because the argument is grounded in that which doesn't change in the order of creation. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's cultural. That is, that is sort of the argument that the church has made as of the 1950s. But if that's such a solid argument, why wasn't that dreamt up before feminism? <laughs> I mean, why don't you see that argument being made somewhere else that, hey, you know, this practice of head coverings is really kind of cultural and antiquated. We'd be better off just doing away with it on our own. Uh, but you don't find. In fact, you find uh, the first Lutherans over here wearing head coverings, along with the Baptists and whomever else, uh, the Puritans, whomever else were coming over. And then you find that in a long history in the East and the West. And it's still, uh, I think, globally largely retained. So for those reasons, I don't think it's very contextual. Yeah, please. Can you address this couple of exceptions in the Bible that yeah well none of it's to diminish um, the role that women play spiritually the the women in Jesus own ministry uh, play a, an amazing role a pivotal role and sometimes there is I mean there is stated that there is chief financial support um, in some respects, 
their faithfulness at the foot of the cross outshines the disciples. There's only one of the disciples there. So, not, you know, none of what I've said and none of what the Bible teaches is meant to somehow diminish the value of women within the God-given roles that they have. They play a profound part. Universally, where women are called to do things that God gives to men, it's a judgment upon the men, and it's a judgment upon the society. It's one of those things of whether you recognize it or not, it's a judgment, objectively speaking. So there are odd times and places in which you see like a female judge. So go look at Deborah and go look at that story and look at the men involved and tell me that's the ideal situation because she has more cojones than the men. And we're to read that as almost absurd and as a judgment upon the men. So it would be, it would fall under the category very firmly of the exception, which is what we have in these cases. The exception proves the rule. The fact that it's so rare and so odd proves the rule and proves the absurdity of what's going on that the rule is, is temporarily and uniquely subverted. That may be overstating it a bit, but I think you get the point. Can you address the issue of the shepherd taking care of the sheep? Because I, I find that one aspect nobody understands. Okay, so tell me more. Well, because your job is also to discipline and do judgment. And I find women do, something personal, don't get all angry, crap at that. Because as soon as they come in, and their son or their daughter says I'm gay or lesbian or whatever, then the next thing you know, it's not, there's no discipline in the church anymore. Well, we need to embrace them. We need to show Jesus love. Mm-hmm. And they, they, it's, it's angry to me that they don't, nobody looked at that part of the discipline or judgment or making yeah. no sermon anymore. Yeah. Like the office of the pastor, that part of his job is to take care of the flock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a great point that you that you bring up because um, and this will tie in to fathers and mothers. If you're a father, no matter how you how much you love your children, you're not going to love them like a mother loves them. It's impossible. You're not a mother. You can't love like a mother. Uh, you're a father. You're going to love like a father. You're a male. I, I mean, even even your uh, even the fact that your skin is thicker and hairier and you're less cuddly uh, is, is an indication, is a physical indication that the nature of your physical love, the nature of your psychological and spiritual love is going to be of a different category than that of the mother. And that then translates, that reality translates the, the nurturing, the softness, the things that make women wonderful and so good at being mothers don't play well into the pastoral office because the pastoral office is analogous to the head of a household and you have to love, but love as a father, you have to have tenderness, but not really a female tenderness, a male tenderness because you also have to be able to be the head of the household, have authority, defend from threats, internal and external, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So there is an analogy there. And it's where um, Paul will talk, for example, about his being a spiritual father. And you do find some of that language in the scriptures 
you find it more thoroughgoing in the history of the church, but you never find language of being a spiritual mother. Uh, about the closest you come to that is Jesus saying, as a hen gathers her chicks, so would I have gathered you? Um, maybe the woman sweeping for a coin, but it's an oddity here and there that stands out. Um, it's not really, and, and even that isn't directly a statement on um, being a spiritual mother. That's just never outright stated. That idea is never developed. So I think you're exactly right on. The argument here is ontological. That's the point. It has to do with the being. So what the church has done since feminism and since all this came in is the church has tried to make a uh, argument like, oh, no, it's not ontology. Women could do the job just as good as males could. And that's what you're rejecting. And I 100% reject that. It's impossible to think that that's the case. And what the church ends up doing is sort of wringing its hands, which is really a faithless thing to do. The church goes, well, you know, clearly women could do this job just as well as males. We don't know what God is up to. Ah, It's just his rules. And we've just got to, is that what Paul does? That's not what Paul does at all. Paul doesn't wring his hands and say, well, I don't know. You know, it's just, you know how God is. It's inexplicable. He's just put it this way. No, Paul makes an argument, but this is exactly why God says it. And this is exactly why it's irrefutably true, because it's written into the very nature and ontology of creation. So we do, we do well to follow Paul on that point and get back to the ontology and make that argument. And then from that will flow the fact that uh, women can't, can't function as pastors either for the reasons that we've stated. And the so you'll also know a tree by its fruit. Look around at the churches that women are pastors over. Ask yourself if that's a place of spiritual wholesomeness and spiritual strength and feel to the word of God. Think pretty universally you'll find that not to be the case. It's almost as if you begin your ministry and violate your ministry in violation of God's word. Like from that foundation is only going to be built a bunch of other rubbish. Yeah. Yes, please. Back in Church of England, so no. it was collapsed, and I attribute this transition to the bigots, which immediately then left the church. Absolutely. Collapse. So, in a practical sense, too, it's absolutely the seeds of. Yeah, one hundred percent. I, I, I wouldn't spend a second under the authority of a woman quote-unquote pastor, nor receive a sacrament for a quote-unquote sacrament from her hand. Yeah, it's, and it's, uh, it's appalling to the conscience. So I think that, and I think men have a visceral reaction to that, even if they can't articulate it and out the door they. And on a practical sense of often but too, God has this there to charge men to take their responsibility. Yes. And certainly men with the many churches, it's just not men who wouldn't step up, willing to defer and then that once again it collapses because the call to men is ignored. Yeah. Asked off people who are more spiritual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. And we're I mean, we know this domestically too, where the women will take over, that's their sinful nature. We're more than happy, our sinful nature, to let it happen <laughs> and relinquish our duties. I think I saw another hand. Yeah, please. Explicitly stated in Isaiah? Yeah. Could you say it again? Yeah, Isaiah 3.12. 
basically the whole chapter is going on through like I'm like God is judging. Mm. Yeah, yeah. When uh, when women are ruling over, that's a sign of God's judgment. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, I know we could argue about it being a theocratic state or whatever, but that ruling isn't, isn't a spiritual ruling. That's a civil ruling. So if we were going to build the case on why we shouldn't have women in government ruling over men and having authority over men, we might point to a verse like that, and we might start to build um, a theology there, which there is one to build biblically. Yeah. Yes. Are they Bibles? There's a whole page. 389. 389. And it's a Marianne, but a Muslim sister, Marianne, is considered a prophet. But she just added a woman. I'm sorry, but? She just added a woman. I don't know. Yeah, well, and Paul's admonition is that you not have authority over a man. So I think I think there's like I don't think there's anything objectively wrong with a woman leading a woman's Bible study, let's say, or uh, yeah, or you've got um, yeah. So you do have an office in in the Book of Acts uh, that some women are qualified for, and it's the office of widow. It's one more example of how the church can create whatever auxiliary offices it wants. God creates an office of the holy ministry. That's, that can't be changed by the church. But then um, other offices can be created. And in the book of Acts, you see this office of widow and this enrollment of women into the office of widow. But they have to meet certain qualifications and that kind of thing. And then among the things that describe the office of widow, it's showing acts of mercy, washing the feet of the saints, which is probably poetic for acts of service. But that would be that would be in keeping with um, maybe maybe somewhat in keeping with the office of deaconess and the LCMS, although. You know, I think we should be on guard with that, just given the cultural milieu in which we live, lest that be some sort of concession or almost women's ordination. Thank you for that verse. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Is, what is the sin nature you have when I, when you talk? I mean, like Solomon and his 700 wives. Then you had Ahab, that was the biggest wimp around. What is what is men? Why do they, as soon as they seem to get married or want to get married, they turn into pieces of jello? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, that is our temptation. Uh, our temptation, and the world's, of course, I, I mean, for us in the 21st century, oh my gosh. Because we have so been enculturated and catechized in the ways of the world from everything from the movies to I well, and I was raised in this whole, you know, I've tried to in my mind track down like what the specific sources were probably sitcoms and that kind of thing. But we were all trained as a as sort of a a generation of men. This is how your fathers are. Don't be like your fathers. And so there was this conscious, like, oh, my dad was insensitive. I'm going to be sensitive. Uh, my, my dad ignored my mom from time to time. Uh, I'm never going to ignore my wife. Unfortunately, a lot of that ignoring and insensitivity 
is precisely well, these are concrete examples of what it is to have authority in your home and to not be pushed around and bullied. And to not just because the wife says, right now, uh, well, it's not your role to say right now. So I'm going to sit on this easy chair for a few more minutes, if for no other reason than to show you that it's that when you snap your fingers, I don't jump. That's the kind of thing that was lost in translation. If not, you know, again, in the, if you want to talk about the super intelligence of the demonic powers, that's we're pre- rebelling precisely against those kinds of things. So the, our sinful nature and the culture around us are all teaching us. Um, and the Christian, the Christian church in America is maybe, maybe makes me most angry of, of all because I, I feel victimized by it. And I feel as though men are victimized by it because the church generically has taught us happy wife, happy life. And in fact, your job is to be cruciform by groveling at the feet of your wife and doing whatever she says. And that is precisely dying to oneself. Rubbish. Rubbish. That's just a manipulative, weak game of trying to get what you want, which usually happens in the bedroom. And then the more you engage in that, the less the bedroom happens, by the way. That's what Satan doesn't tell you. Um, what we, what we have to do is in order to die to ourselves, it's precisely the opposite. Ourselves want to be lazy and self-serving and manipulative. Dying to ourselves is actually doing the difficult confrontational work of establishing and maintaining your authoritative role as husband. And again, this is done in a million subtle ways, including when she snaps her fingers and says, right now you keep staring at the golf game. That's what you do. When she flies off the handle and, you know, you go, oh, okay. All right. Well, Thanks for that. Don't you care? Aren't you going to? Well, what I'm going to do right now is make myself a sandwich. (laughs) So these are the, these are the kinds of, you know, concrete behaviors within a marriage that just show that you're the male, you're the head, you're in control and no, and you're, you're concerned, you're sensitive with what she's concerned with, but in a way that you're going to determine. Yeah. So kind of off on a tangent here, but just exploring how enculturated we've become and how the church has just fed into this, that if you want to be a good Christian man, you should in fact do the very opposite of what a good Christian man should do. Pastor, I have a, uh, just an observation. I remember when you were teaching, uh, through the book, um, why American Christianity is failing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the, that uh, whatever this generation does, the next generation does it less. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, following that, it seems like the seeing things that we've seen the male and the fathers do, just what you've been talking about, giving up our manhood, if you will, it, it's been like a frog in water. It's it's uh, in you slowly turn up the the dial and the the heat it stays in there and so we're we're programmed then to 
do less, be less of a man. And that's where, where the church has to dig its feet in, I think, and, and teach what, just what we're doing to, so we understand scripture and be responsible to it as opposed to just going along with the world because it's getting worse, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's, that's the value, not only, I, I mean, ultimately just faithfulness to God is the value itself. But then if we're going to turn this ship around, and this is where it's not rhetoric in the least, if we're going to turn this ship around, it begins in a, at our dining room tables. It, be, it begins in our houses. It begins showing a good example to our children and our children to their children. That's the way a culture turns around. Um, should God grant it. So it's the really small painstaking work of building with gold and silver and precious stones. It takes forever, but that's what we're called to do. It's not going to be quick and dirty wood, hay and stubble stuff. There's not going to be a, a quick solution. Pastor, I'd like to make a comment about the, uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I, I th- no, I think it was a smaller comment. So yeah, please. Oh, I just wanted to make an encouraging comment. I think that um, a lot, many of our wives that are, you know, studying the Bible on their own and um, seeking the Lord every day, uh, the Holy Spirit is guiding them into the truths of what you're talking about. You know, the the right uh, the right structure of the family and the authority of Scripture, Christ over the husband, husband over the wife. Um, so I think that to me, what I see uh, from some of the folks I know, and also here, and you know. With 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 uh, in our home, these, these issues these are not issues. These are these are understood, and uh, and God's order is not always understood. But yet, it's beautiful when you see it work out. And I'm not saying it's perfect or anything, but I do see that women that are sensitive to the Holy Spirit are are beautiful in this area. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a wonderful place for women to shine and of course i mean we always stated as a as a joke or we kind of snicker and i I think we have to but the scriptures commend uh sarah for referring to abraham as her lord and that's carried over in the new testament godly women will look at that and even if they think well that's a bridge too far in our culture (laughs) they'll see a proper attitude and reverence. And it's kind of this golden thread that runs through uh, the house toffle text, the household code text that we looked at in the, in the adult class, not too long ago, that when one fulfills his, his or her vocation in a godly manner, it's done ultimately out of love for God, not the worthiness of, so a wife who is submissive to her husband doesn't necessarily do so because he's worthy of it but does so because it's part of her devotion and faithfulness to God. And so there are godly women who recognize this. And then I would also say too, and you'll see this, um, because we're talking about order of creation, we're talking about something written into creation, you'll find sometimes pagan women who are far better wives than Christian women, simply because they are more attuned to the natural uh, the the natural law and the order of creation than Christian women who have been catechized by the modern church, who was basically taught egalitarianism and destroyed hierarchy in marriage. And, you know, you get this like 
add a, you know, you get this, especially when you, when you listen to sermons or teachings on Genesis and the fall into sin, that's kind of a litmus test for where you're going to go in terms of uh, the hierarchy. Okay. Sad assessed. Anything else we want to, we want to touch on? All right. Very good. Well, uh, We'll turn to the parables, and of course, if you had uh, anything that you just want, didn't want to say in front of uh, everyone, I get that. Let me know in your own time. Okay, so turning then back to the parables, we seem to have left off in chapter 20. Yes, uh, verse 9 with the parable of the wicked tenants. And it, it will just benefit us to recall briefly that Jesus is in the midst of Holy Week when he teaches uh, this parable and obviously the remaining uh, statements that we'll study are all done in the context of Holy Week here in Luke's Gospel. So it, it would be good for us to pick up at verse 1 just to gain a little bit of context So one day, that is within Holy Week, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is, or who is it, excuse me, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? If we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And of course, John is the one who pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So... If they defer here to John, then, I mean, they're going to find themselves absolutely nailed. On the contrary, John is already martyred. So if they speak ill against John, uh, no doubt this is not an exaggeration. They're speaking ill of a a much beloved martyr of the people, and they're going to stone him. All right, so they chicken out. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Which, by the way, should factor, this is a tangent, but should factor into our theology when we consider the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. Sometimes way too much of a distinction or a wedge is placed between those two. Um, Look what, what our Lord asks was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And clearly clearly the answer is it's from heaven. So John's baptism is a baptism from heaven. John's baptism is, according to the scriptures, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So if nothing else, John's baptism confers the forgiveness of sins and confers heavenly blessings and benefits. 
we can talk about the post-resurrection baptism of Jesus, sort of the Matthew 28, as the fullness of that baptism, as an expansion of that baptism. All of that language is appropriate, but pitting them against each other as though they were two separate baptisms would be a thing alien to the scriptures. Further evidenced by the fact that those who receive the baptism of John don't immediately receive the baptism of Jesus as if that were the real necessary thing. Okay, all that's a tangent, but it does factor into that conversation. All right, Jesus responds wonderfully, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, which is so great. Chapter 20 is like just the greatest because you just see Jesus victorious over the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus victorious over the Sadducees. Jesus just, I mean, it's, he knows the time is at hand and it's 200 proof. Hope I can say this, just ass kicking is what happens in chapter 20. He's just taking his enemies uh, to task and putting them in, in positions that are simply untenable. All right. No doubt then uh, that is also at root when we look at the wicked tenants. So he's just rebuffed them and silenced these critics. And then he turns to the people and tells a parable about them. <laughs> just it's such a boss move. <laughs> and if you look over at uh, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them but they feared the people. So again, you see they're kind of cowardly, conniving, but they know that this parable's been told against them. They just can't do anything about it at this point. All right, into the parable we go. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. The vineyard is theologically laden because especially when you have Isaiah five, the song of the vineyard and the Lord uh, has, has the vineyard as Israel, his people, and he's done everything. He's built the hedge. He's, um, you know, given it the rich soil. He's put the tower in the center, like everything. But then when he goes to look for grapes, it yields bitter and sour grapes. So that's all in the background <laughs> is that the vineyard is Israel. A man planted a vineyard and let it out or rented it to tenants. I, I mean, even just more literally farmers. And he went into another country for a long while. Now, sometimes when the man goes away for a long while, it's like Jesus ascension. And then you have his return. That's not the time period in view here. This would be more like, um, until his first coming, until his incarnation, right? So he leaves the country for a long while. He gives he gives his people Israel over into the hands of, of tenants, namely the scribes, chief priests, and elders. He goes into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants. Again, slave is the best translation to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So rents do, it's just only fair. And in the meantime, he's going to collect rent, but they can live and eat and have their livelihood. 
It's also even kind of poetic because it remains his vineyard. So they're, they and their families are eating from his land and his vineyard, and he's been gracious enough to give them employment. And the whole thing is couched in, in terms of his grace, and he's just only asking what's fair here. But the tenants beat him, beat the slave, and sent him away empty-handed. So then what we're going to see here is an escalation, one slave after another unto the son. So verse 11, he sent another slave, but they also beat and treated him shamefully. So not only did they beat him, but somehow they insulted him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one they also wounded. It's where we get our English word like traumatized. So they wounded him and cast him out. So it's escalating. And what would this be analogous to? This would be analogous to the father in the Old Testament sending his prophets. And of course, what do they do? The prophets, they abuse the prophets. So we have the setup. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And so obviously now Jesus speaking of himself But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. The rationale here doesn't seem to be exactly clear or exactly sane. But the thought seems to be that if we get rid of the heir, this owner who's moved away, he'll cut his losses and we'll never hear from him again. He'll die eventually. This will just be ours for free. But when the tenants saw him, verse 14, saw the vineyard owner's son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, which is prophetic, of course, because they're going to throw Jesus out of Jerusalem in order to kill him. Right. It's also the the tenants know because they said, hey, they they know what the master's son yeah. So, so if he's telling them, he's telling them, "Hey, schmucks, you know I'm the son." Mm-hmm. So these guys are these guys are just playing down. Yeah, yeah, I right, and I mean the people in the parable are dumb. The tenants in the parable are dumb, which is probably also part of the insult to the scribes and chief priests. Like, how do you think this is going to go? I mean, obviously the owner is going to do something about it, and that implication would be. Well, how do you scribes and chief priests and elders think this is going to go? God is obviously going to do something about it, right? Yeah. Okay, so they kill him, and then Jesus asks the question, the latter half of verse 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Nobody wants to answer. (laughs) There may have even been a pregnant pause. So Jesus supplies the answer to his own question. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, again, if you're looking for a a concrete fulfillment of that, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed in 70 and it's given to others. To this day, Gentiles have run over the top and possessed uh, Israel or I mean, uh, 
Jerusalem. In fact, I can't recall if it's in this context or not. No, I think it's I think it's in Matthew, maybe. But they, this is even then referred to the time of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is over. Okay, when they heard this, now the they is probably most clearly the people. When they heard this, they said, surely not, which is uh, maybe more accurately, like, never may it be or may it never be so. Like, this is too terrible to imagine. But he looked directly at them. So again, this is a very poignant and deliberate moment. And he said, what then is this that is written? And this is being cited from Psalm 118, 22, uh, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So just as the tenants rejected the sun, the builders are going to reject the stone. So sometimes this is even categorized as like a sec- a separate parable or a second parable in this section. So that's the question. And it's posed as a rhetorical question. Obviously, the stone will be rejected according to the scriptures and then become the cornerstone. Jesus then adds this commentary in 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. So the idea of like um, tripping or falling upon that stone, uh, we're not thinking about like just a little rock here. Talking about like maybe like a big slab or something. And so you, you trip and fall and you smash yourself on it. You're, um, you're shattered upon it. That's what's in view. Anyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So that is to say, um, to reject the stone, to reject Jesus is to be broken in pieces or to be crushed. Okay, and then that's that's the end of this little section. So then the scribes and the chief priests perceive that it's against him, and then they concoct all these plans, and they send spies. It's all this cloak and dagger stuff, which is usually, I don't know, at least in my experience, indicative of who's on the wrong side of any controversy. <laughs> when you got the cloak and dagger stuff going on, it's usually one-sided, and it's usually not the right side doing it. Okay, so we we should pause there because that's the parable of the wicked tenants or, if you will, the parable of the wicked tenants and the parable of the stone side by side. Straightforward. I mean, it's one of the, I think it's one of the most straightforward ones. It's easiest to line up. The idea is that we, it's another parable of disgust. So the idea is that we would be disgusted by tenants who would act like that, and thus we would be disgusted with the religious leaders who reject Jesus. Yeah, yeah. But that's the part that really different. This is the heir. They know that he is the Christ, the Son of God. They know it, and they just are blinded, mm-hmm. rage, outraged. Yeah. The idea that the Messiah will be rejected 
is a strange idea and an idea that they don't seem to be able to wrap their heads around. I mean, they're looking, the general faith is they're looking for a Messiah, but they're not looking for a Messiah who's going to be rejected, who's going to be put to death. That seems, that's a strange and alien concept to them. So you see, whenever Jesus talks about this, like his disciples don't get it. They don't understand what he means. And it's, it's kind of similar here too. When Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Like he knows that's a question from the scriptures that doesn't fit their contemporary theology. So they're not going to get it. And that's the point of the question. Sir, would that comment surely not be a sign of their bondage too? They're basically saying, no, this won't be taken from us. We're not going to. They say that right after he says he, God's going to come and destroy them. <laughs> when they say surely not. Yeah, I think it's so. So he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others is probably heard by them as Jerusalem will be taken from you and given unto others. And they say, let it never be so. That's kind of the idea. They're not saying that he's wrong. In fact, they're saying that what he has just said is too terrible. May it never come to pass. And then Jesus says, well, it will come to pass because the stone will be rejected and become the cornerstone. And then that stone will be fallen upon and will crush. So there's going to be a judgment. Again, all of that tying in most directly to uh, what happens in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, the overrun and ransack of Jerusalem. Okay, you have them trying to entrap Jesus with uh, the coin of Caesar, and is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? And of course, he appears to be pinned by this question. Like either way, he answers now, he's going to uh, get into trouble. But of course, he finds a way to thread the needle perfectly. So if you look at 26, this kind of becomes the thesis of this section in Luke's gospel. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Okay, then you have this group that is in disagreement with the Pharisees, scribes, and elders, the Sadducees, this sect that is probably best known for rejecting any any form of the afterlife. So rejecting the resurrection, but then also just rejecting that there's any existence after death. So this life is all you get is basically the Pharisees teaching. And G- and so they've got this question that they think Jesus isn't going to be ans- able to answer about the seven brothers who all share one wife with no children. And then they say, so, you know, they think they've got this conundrum in the resurrection, whose wife will the woman be? And then this, this is worth looking at because, um, because it's wonderful. <laughs> and because it's, it's the gospel that's too great uh, for many to believe in. So the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered uh, worthy to it attain. And that's a good translation. Axios worthy is the root of, what is, of that word that is translated worthy to attain. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead 
how how does one become worthy of that? Faith in the Son and faith that endures whatever onslaughts of the devil. That's that's what worthiness consists of. It's not like a certain level of sanctification. Jesus says, okay, you made it, but that was close. You know, that's that's not worthiness. Worthiness is faith in Christ and faith that endures until the end. And so they are worthy to attain to an entirely different age. Notice the contrast between this age and the next age. In this age, there's marriage and giving in marriage. In the next age, not so. Now, Jesus is going to say not less than three times here that there is a resurrection from the dead, and they're just point blank wrong. So they're worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. So like that's like, hey, look, I know what you're up to. You don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and there most certainly is one. And in that age and in the resurrection of the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Then he says, for they cannot die anymore, which is wonderful. So there's your answer. Once you're resurrected, could you die? Nope. Death is removed. Because they are equal or like unto the angels. Either one is fine, but like unto is probably more accurately the sense here. It's not so much a status thing, but it's like unto as the context dictates. So like unto the angels and our sons of God. Which is a remarkable statement. Because that's the Beni Elohim of the Old Testament. The sons of God is a. Amongst things created, the highest of all are the sons of God. You can't, you can't really get higher than that. Higher than that is God himself. This is the, this is the gospel that's too great for us to believe. This is what Paul's talking about too when he, when he talks about the revelation of the Beni Elohim of the sons of God. That's what we're looking forward to. It's not only the glorification of the world, um, but it's the glorification of us individually and collectively and finally becoming what God has had in mind. Um, from the start. So the sons of God are like unto the angels. It's possible that the, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to go there. Never mind. All right. And then here also being sons of the resurrection. So death, which is now our shame will be so thoroughly undone. That'll be our glory because we'll be those who have overcome death. And indeed, will be born from the grave. So the tomb become a womb. That's the that's the victory of Jesus over death. It's not just like, oh well, you know, he sort of neutralized death. He so thoroughly reversed death that it's exact opposite. The tomb has become a womb. That's what it means to be buried with Christ through baptism. Um, so that we will be victors over death, and we will be sons of the resurrection. So. Titles, um, sons of God, sons of the resurrection. Jesus himself giving us glimpses into the glorious future that he has and why faith is worth it and why faith is the most glorious thing and why faith that endures is the most glorious thing. Sanctification goes up and down. 
good times come, good times go. Bad times come, bad times go. Life is a violent, tumultuous affair. In the end, all that matters is retaining faith in Jesus. And you're worthy to attain to that age, which is to come in the glory of the sons. And you can think about this because the essence of the sin, uh, the original sin, was just, do you believe in God or not? Do you believe that what he says is true or not? Adam believed the serpent, not God. Or excuse me, Eve believed the serpent, not God. Adam believed Eve and not God. (laughs) And so now all God wants to do, I mean, the reconciliation is, will you believe him? It's literally, it's the one-to-one reconciliation. If you'll believe, if you'll believe in his son, if you'll believe in on this one point, um, you're restored, you're reconciled. Say say again. Well, so I mean, in the in the act of the original sin, and we, this was coming from uh, the quote, one of the quotations we read last week. Eve listens to the serpent. That's instead of God. So that's the form of her rebellion against God, her unbelief. And the form of Adam's is different because he has God's word and he has his wife's word and he listens to his wife. That's his form of unbelief. The reckon, the symmetry there is that God, by unbelief, we fell by belief will be restored. So there's all kinds of symmetry by a tree. We fell by the tree of the cross will be restored by eating. We fell by eating. We have forgiveness. Um, by unbelief, we fell by faith. We're restored. There's all kinds of macro symmetry going on here, but it really is just that simple. And you go, well, why is faith such a big deal to God? And why is faith in, in a sense, I mean, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to make some antinomian point, but in the end, why faith just, why faith is the one thing that matters. And that's why it's because of this macro symmetry that unbelief was the irreconciliation. Belief is the reconciliation. It's it, and it re it reconstitutes everything. It submits us once more to God that what He says is true, and it's that simple. And it's that beautiful. And it's that glorious. And all of that, I mean, the, I've kind of painted the the donut here, but all of that, the middle is because of Christ and because of His atonement and because of what He worked. And because I mean, if you didn't have Christ, none of the rest would be possible. The symmetry doesn't work unless you have Christ in the middle making it so. Being a uh, making God both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so just glorious stuff here. Like unto the angels, sons of God, sons of the resurrection. I know this isn't a parable, but it's pretty wonderful, isn't it? But that the dead are raised. So I think that's the, that's the third time explicit, even though cannot die anymore, ties in as well. But the dead are raised, even Moses showed. So here we see Jesus being a biblical theologian. Jesus is always drawing his points back to the scriptures and always making his theological arguments from the scriptures. It's almost as if Jesus himself was a sola scriptura theologian. So that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush, the burning bush, who knew? Who knew that the resurrection was there in the burning bush? Which this is also delightful because who was in the burning bush? <laughs> Jesus. 
Jesus was in the burning bush, so he knows this intimately and well. In the passage about the bush where he calls, Moses calls the Lord, which of course is him. And he's going to tie this in because look what's going to come next. He's going to, this language of the Lord. If you flip over uh, to 42, this is, we're jumping sections, but he's got one more puzzle for them from the scriptures. What does it mean that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? If you answer that, you get that the Lord, that Jesus is the Lord, right? That he is the divine son of God. So that there's already an allusion to this here where he, Moses, calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And sure enough, Exodus chapter 3 bears this out. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live to him. That is to say, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they died, yet they live. Their souls are with him, and they will most certainly be resurrected. So there's Jesus teaching the afterlife, the intermediate state of being alive and the resurrection from Genesis 3 and specifically from this phrase that the Lord is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living for all live to him. Okay, then some of the scribes answered. And it's kind of funny. It's kind of humorous because the scribes don't really like the Sadducees anyway. And they've just got thoroughly thoroughly whomped. So some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. <laughs> we enjoyed the beating you just delivered onto our foes. Kind of humorous. And then 40 is kind of this same thing, this mantra that recurred earlier in 26, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. So Jesus is just, I mean, it's Holy Week. He's pulling the gloves off and he's just stomping on everyone. And he's asking these questions that they can't answer. And if they can't answer, they'll have no other conclusion, but that he is the divine son of God and the Messiah. who's going to be rejected and nonetheless become the cornerstone. Okay, so that's all the time we've got. I'm sorry, keep having a habit of taking us a few minutes over. So what we'll do uh, as we look forward, We've got um, one more here in Luke, and then we're going to turn over to Matthew, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, no, no, no. One more. One more in Luke, one more in Mark, and then to Matthew for the completion of the parables. So that's uh, where we are and where we're going. All right. Let's close up with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you guys online for joining. Thanks, Pastor. It was very encouraging. Awesome. All right. We'll see you guys.